Today's scripture reading comes from Galatians 5, verses 16 through 21. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it is wonderful to be here at Revive, and uh, I've known Pastor Susong now for uh, quite a while, as uh, both being members of the NorCal Presbytery. It's funny, he emailed me that he preaches normally for 40 to 50 minutes, and that you all would be happy if I preached about the same length. My people would be throwing tomatoes at me if I was preaching past 35 minutes. So I can guarantee you it's going to be about that length or shorter. So you better let the children's ministry people know that uh, we're going to be done early, okay? (laughs) I have time to make jokes. I can talk about my ribeye preparation. I'm very specific about it. I can lose my spot. We got all the time in the world. This is great. And, uh, And like Young said, I've been serving on the Revive temporary session, and I've made a note that you all were clapping in one of your songs and that will be uh, noted in the minutes. <laughs> See, you don't even know that it, your name is Presbyterian, and that means you have to be the frozen chosen, and you can't clap. I'm teasing. I'm glad you're clapping. I want more clapping. I silently applaud you. Um, okay, so got to know Young as well, and uh, we do pray for this congregation. Now, a little bit more about me. I became a Christian uh, when I was 15 years old. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My parents are still not Christians. But when I was 21, six years into being a Christian, senior year in college, I tried walking away from the faith. We just got done singing, what is it, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. And I would have sang that song back then, but I tried to turn back. And if maybe there's someone here listening who's, just turned back or tried to or thinking about it, hopefully this might speak to them in their situation. I told people publicly I was no longer Christian, no longer believed this stuff, no longer was going to church, no longer identified with Jesus. But here I am, I'm a pastor, right? So it didn't take, and I'll get into why. But I tried to walk away partly because of passages like this one that we just heard. God's truth has this uh, good news, bad news dynamic to it, and I kind of understood the bad news, but I wasn't understanding and seeing the good news in this passage. And so what is it here in this passage and other passages like this that led me to want to turn back and walk away from Christianity? Well, here a battle is described. There's a battle against the flesh, against our sin nature, and At this point for me in college, when I was 21, struggling with the usual sin patterns that college people might, like partying and stuff like that, I was losing the battle frequently, and it was hurting me. So I figured it was better simply to cut my losses and run. 
See, I was in a similar place of, of some of Paul's original readers here, these Galatian Christians. They were not understanding the good news of Jesus. They were mistakenly believing and living that if they obeyed God's rules, God's law, if they performed some of his rituals like circumcision and kosher dietary regulations, they would gain a right standing with God, what the Bible calls justification. And they would also grow in real-time holiness or sanctification. For this passage here, the focus is on how we live now. What will give us changed lives? This holiness, sanctification. The law says, do and obey. And that's what most non-Christians think of Christianity. That Christianity is a bunch of rules, a bunch of do's and don'ts. Now, everyone has rules. Our culture here in the Bay Area has lots of rules, lots of do's and don'ts, but most people around here don't seem to mind those. They do seem to mind some of the Christian rules. But even if you did like the Christian rules, what if you can't do them? What if you lose more than you win? Even worse, what if you think you're good at them and think that you're winning more than you're losing? The law, as these Galatians were thinking of it, has no category for this ongoing fight with sin that from any honest angle should feel like a losing battle. In senior year of college, mine felt like a losing battle. What I didn't realize was that the fact that there was a battle at all was good news. I didn't realize whose fight this really was and that I participated in it first by faith and trust. I didn't realize that while Christianity has rules, rules were not the heart of Christianity. There is so much good news here. But first we have to clear away the fake news and then honestly look at the bad news. Only then will the good news really land and make sense. So we're going to talk about three things. The fake news, the bad news, and the good news. So first, the fake news. What I mean by fake news is the things that we get from this passage as we read it that aren't even true. We so easily misread and misinterpret this passage. We can start with these very concerning verses, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We read this list of vices, and we're going to talk about them in a moment, but the thing that really hits us is what Paul says at the very end. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And inheriting the kingdom of God is the language Paul uses for going to heaven. Inheriting the kingdom of God is being with Jesus in the Father's loving embrace forever. And if people who do those things don't go to heaven, where do they go? They go to hell. So if people who do these things go to hell, how can I avoid going to hell with them? Well, what's the opposite of doing these things? Not doing these things. If I want to go to heaven, my job is to note and pay careful attention to everything on this list and not do them. Just don't do the bad stuff and you'll be okay. That's fake news. Right there, we've taken good news about Jesus and we turned it into good advice. We think, you want to know God? You want to be sure you're going to heaven when you die? Just avoid these bad things. Don't do them. Fake news. 
Now, when we take a look at this list of vices, we can easily begin to rate them, right? Envy and division. So that's kind of simple stuff. That just seems like the normal way of life. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions. Yeah, these seem a little more serious, but maybe not rising to the level of being sent to hell. We see impurity and sensuality. Okay, this is, this is getting more serious. We wonder, what do those mean? Maybe I struggle with impurity and sensuality. Then we get to the doozies. Sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, drunkenness, and orgies. Okay, we can agree those might be hell-worthy. So this is how we can distort this list. Try to be a good guy, a team player. Think the best about people. Fight against whatever lust stuff you deal with. Don't let it control you. And at all costs, avoid having an affair, practicing magic, and attending drinking sex parties. Do this, and you go to heaven. Fake news. This is just basic middle-class morality. Nothing really Christian about it. This is why the majority of people who call themselves Christians actually live just like non-Christians do. We can misread the Bible to fit whatever our current value system might be. So I get it because I'm someone who struggles with instructions. I have no intuition for how most things work or are put together or should be handled. I'm overly literal with what I read or am told, and I mess things up. For example, years ago, I was living with a buddy, and we decided to make a nice dinner for ourselves, and we divvied up the work, and one of my jobs was making garlic bread. Now, growing up, garlic bread was something that you bought in the frozen section in the store, and you put it in the oven, and voila, you had garlic bread. But we wanted the real thing, and I didn't know how to make it. So my buddy hands me a fresh baguette of bread and says, cut it in half, put on the garlic butter, and then put it in the oven. So what I did was I cut it in half, like breaking a communion loaf, and then I coated the outside with garlic butter, right, the crust, and then I put it into the oven to toast up. Of course, it didn't turn into garlic bread. And my buddy was like, I, I guess you technically did what I said, but come on, man, think a little bit, right? We do this with passages like this. We can easily misread or misinterpret or fill in the blanks for ourselves. For instance, look at verses 16 through 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Okay, even though it doesn't suggest it, the way that we read these verses is, there's a good you, and there's a bad you. Right? The two yous are fighting. You are divided. It doesn't say that, but we can easily internalize it that way. And if we do, do you know what that means? That means it's all about you. It's all about you. It's all on you. The good you has to defeat the bad you. You have to not do these bad things or you're going to hell. The battle is all yours and it's all up to you, the good you, to win it. Fake news. These things are not true. The Christian life is not about avoiding the really bad sins. It's not about how you perform. It's not all on you. And yet we so easily believe that. Why? Well, that's because of the bad news. So going to the bad news here, again, verses 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Your problem is not the bad you. Your problem is the flesh. 
The flesh is not your body. The flesh is this fallen, sinful nature that has infected every human being. The flesh is this powerful impulse to control, distort, dehumanize, consume. The flesh wants to be away from God, out from under God's commands and authorities. The flesh ultimately wants destruction. Many Christians, when talking about the fact that there's this flesh, this sin nature that operates in us, they can point to little children to show how even they uh, seemingly quite naturally can be selfish and gluttonous and accusatory. If you can see it in kids, then of course it's in all of us. But for me, it's not my children who reveal my depravity. It's my parenting. How can I get so annoyed and frustrated? How can I be so self-absorbed and grouchy? How can I demand my own agenda at the cost of teaching them good things? If you are a parent, you know what it's like laying in bed at the end of the day thinking about what happened and wondering how you could have been so self-centered or such a jerk to a beautiful human being who is a gift from God himself. The flesh distorts the good gifts God gives us and drives us toward the bad. I'm a part of an atheist discussion group. I'm the, the token Christian that they like to beat up on. And so I had this discussion with them all the time. And I tell them, look, you don't need to look further than the 20th century. World wars, genocides, famines, totalitarianism, mutually assured destruction, so on and so forth. Millions upon millions of people were involved in these things. How can we possibly say there isn't a deep problem, a tendency toward evil in every human being? The point is, whatever you are doing or not doing, it's not enough. The flesh, our sin nature, runs too deep, and it's too powerful for us to overcome on our own. And that's part of what Paul means in verse 18 when he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You are either led by the Spirit or you are under the law. God's law of do's and don'ts, and the, and the law doesn't work to make you holy. It doesn't work that way. Paul says elsewhere in the letter to the Colossians, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If we are looking to the law, if we are looking to our behavior to change us or make us holy, we are being deceived by the flesh, the sin nature. It's a trick. You can tell from this list what Paul means. Of course, he mentions sexual immorality, sorcery, and orgies. Stay away from that stuff. But what he focuses on are sins of conflict and judgment. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Both before and after this passage, Paul talks about these as the primary ethical problem with the Galatians. It wasn't the flashy stuff. It was this gritty, relational stuff. There's all kinds of sins that come with thinking that you can establish your righteousness and holiness with the law. You begin to judge other people. You begin to envy those who seem to have it more together. You group up with a few other people who condemn the same things you do. You begin comparing and competing in terms of outward righteousness. Who's doing more for God? Who's fighting sin harder? Are you doing your daily quiet times? Are you reading your Bible in a year? Are you staying away from pornography? Are you not getting drunk? All these things are worthwhile, 
Do the good and avoid the bad. But don't for a minute think that that's what will keep you safe from the flesh or hell. This is a setup by the evil one. If you think that simply avoiding these bad things will keep you safe, you are actually going down the road to destruction. The flesh, evil, intends to deceive us. Maybe you've heard of Toxoplasma gondii, which causes toxoplasmosis. It's a parasite, and its primary host is cat intestines. How does it get there? Well, the eggs come out in the cat waste, and it gets into the ground, and then mice pick it up. The parasites then grow in the mice, and they change the DNA in mice neurons to make the the mice more docile and attracted to cat urine. You know what will happen to a mouse that's attracted to cat urine and is docile? Boom, right? The cats catch the mice, eat them, get into their intestines. The cycle starts all over again. What this parasite does in mice is the kind of parasite the flesh nature is. It invades us and attempts to take over our hearts and minds and bends our behavior towards self-destruction. The cat's just doing what cats do, but all the while, both cat and mouse are being played by the parasite. The flesh, sin nature, it infects everything, including our spirituality. The flesh is stronger than us. We will never be able to do enough. And even our good deeds, it can twist. And it's in us, fighting to devour us. That's really bad news. And it should lead us to cry out for rescue. And that's where we find the good news. So, what is the good news? Well, there's lots of it. There's lots of it here. First of all, it's not all on you. It's not even about you. Verse 17, again, first half. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. This is good versus evil. God's spirit versus the sin nature, flesh. They're fighting over you. So it's not the good you versus the bad you. Evil is fighting to enslave and destroy you. God is fighting to set you free and make you fully alive. And you feel this war. And every moment you have a choice to move towards or with God's spirit or towards the flesh. So if you feel like you are in the thick of the battle, rejoice. That means God is fighting for you. That's good news. Some of you have been Christians a long time and you wonder, why is this battle still here in my heart? Maybe a battle over the same old things for years. Why? Might that mean I'm not really a Christian after all? No. The primary Christian experience until death or Jesus returns is warfare. Your heart is a battleground, and with every thought, deed, and word, we are granting ground either to the spirit or the flesh, and the battlegrounds can get weary, scarred, and discouraged. But the fact that there's a battle means God is in you, fighting for you. That's good news. How do you know? Second half of verse 17. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What does Paul mean? He means the Spirit keeps us from doing all the bad that the flesh wants us to do and enjoying it. The Spirit disrupts our sin. And that makes sense to me. I've been a Christian for 28 years, but a sinner for 44 years. 
God's Spirit is the new addition to my heart. And what he does is he takes a lot of the fun and satisfaction out of sin, enough that I could never be happy giving myself over to the flesh. Sin ends up feeling so hollow and empty because God is living in you, fighting for you. If you hate the sin that you seemingly can't get rid of, that's evidence of God's presence. That's God's spirit. Do you find yourself tired of fighting sin, usually the same sins over and over? And are you tired of losing that fight more than you should? And yet when you lose that fight, you find that the sin doesn't really satisfy. In fact, it makes you pretty sad. That's where I was senior year in college. I wanted out of that discomfort. So I felt like if I left Christianity, that would untie the knot. It would end the discomfort because the battle would go away. But the battle didn't go away because God didn't go away. More about that in a moment. But first, maybe you're here and you're listening and you aren't a Christian. And you're hearing this and you're thinking, Bob, you're not really selling this Christian thing. Right? I'd rather not be a part of this battle with all these potential losses and feeling torn and tired. But let me ask you a question. Has anyone ever fought for you? That's a question for everyone. Do you know what it's like to be fought for? Has anyone ever fought for you? And I don't mean how our military and first responders fight for us. That's wonderful. But I mean being fought for simply for the sake of you. I bet there are people here listening who have never felt fought for. Not by parents or parental figures, not by siblings, not by teachers, coaches, bosses, friends, church leaders, even pastors. But even if someone has fought for you, it wouldn't be like what's described here in this passage. No one has fought for you who knows your every thought, every intention, every word and deed. No one has fought for the real you with all your warts and messiness, failures and potential. Only God can see that. And if this battle is engaged in your life, that means God knows you, the real honest you, and thinks that you're worth fighting for. You might have read about this a few years ago. It was during the summer, and uh, an, an extended family went to Sequoia National Park. And they were walking along a river that was uh, still swollen with a strong current, and it was slippery there, and their five-year-old, Vincent, fell in. And immediately, Vincent's 22-year-old uncle, Victor, jumped in to rescue him, except Victor couldn't swim, and he knew that when he jumped in. So somehow, Victor got to Vincent and pushed the five-year-old toward his parents, and they grabbed him, but Victor went under. His body was found several hours later. He went into the water, a dangerous place he didn't belong, in order to save his nephew. And Jesus goes to the cross, a place he doesn't belong, in order to save sinners like you and me. Hey, you who are tired of fighting the battle and tired of losing, do you know God thinks you are worth fighting for? You who try so hard and truly want to please God and have given so much of your life for him, do you know God thinks you're worth fighting for, even if you'd failed at everything? That's good news. The battle is tiring and sometimes discouraging, but we know the outcome. Jesus fought our sin and death on the cross, and he rose from the dead. 
The battle is won. And so now, in us, this victory is being worked out and applied by the Spirit. God's Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who was poured out on God's people after Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Pentecost, today, we celebrate it. If God is for you, who can be against you? God finishes what he starts, and whatever he starts, whatever he starts at, he doesn't lose. He doesn't quit. The cross and resurrection are guarantees of that. So if he is fighting for you and fighting in you, the victory is secure. See, that's what it means to be led by the Spirit. The Spirit leads us back to Jesus, back to his death and resurrection. In fact, Paul says here to walk by the Spirit or in the Spirit. Maybe one way to understand this in modern terms might be to be walked by the Spirit. This is what I mean. We got a a rescue puppy a few years ago. He was four months old at the time. Some kind of mutt, very strange dog actually. And uh, it took him a long time, took us a long time to get him to walk well on a leash. At first he had this massive anxiety. He, He didn't want to leave the house. We would have to pick him up and drag him. Then he would run after everything, right, and, and pull in all kinds of directions. There's, there's geese to chase. There's dogs to meet. There's a truck to run after. But what he needs is a good, long, familiar walk. That's what will bring him health and life and happiness. But we had to train him for that. In the same way, the Spirit wants to walk us to Jesus regularly, constantly. And we can be pulling at the leash, right? We can be fighting the Spirit. When we fail and we are ashamed, we want to hide. When we feel strong, we want to go out and perform in our own name. When we're discouraged, we want to go and distract ourselves with sensuality. When we have our own agenda, we want to run away off the leash. But God's Spirit always wants to walk us back to Jesus. He is always the safe, good place to be. He is better than our agenda, more compelling than our sensuality. His mercy is unending, and his love is unconditional. How do you engage this battle against the flesh? By surrendering. You surrender to the Spirit and let him walk you back to Jesus every moment. This is how it all came together for me that senior year in college. After a few weeks of my silliness, I I recognized God refused to go away. He kept fighting for me. I sensed his presence. He hadn't left me. And one of my Christian friends and mentors, who's now a pastor in North Carolina, came over to my dorm room and, and we talked. And all he had to do was ask a simple question. Bob, is there anything you can do to make God stop loving you? And I dropped my head and I knew the answer. No. See, he was making me prove to myself was that I was not under the law, but I was under grace. If God's love for you is not based on your good performance and not withheld because of your poor performance, you are not under the law. You are being led by the Spirit to Jesus. Years ago, one of my buddies who pastors in Southern California now was uh, working with youth at a church, and he was driving them on a service trip through Oregon. And as he was driving, they passed by a a big billboard on the side of the highway. 
And as he, as he approached it, he knew it was not a usual kind of advertisement. They got close enough to it, and they saw these three blown-up snapshots of a little boy, maybe around eight years old. And they were home photos, not professionally done. Blown up there on the billboard. And underneath the photos, in big words, it said, I will find you. I will never give up. Love, Mom. That's what I experienced my senior year in college. God not letting go. God not giving up on me. God fighting for me. Even when he had every reason to. And I even asked him to let me go. I realized this wasn't all about me or my performance. And I hope you realize it's not all about you and your performance. That's what we see in this passage. That's the gospel. This is really about God's determination to find you and to fight for you and to make you his. Now, if you are fatigued, discouraged, even miserable over your battle with the flesh, take courage. Rejoice even. That's evidence that God's spirit is alive in you and fighting for you. And God doesn't lose his fights. That's good news. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you are fighting for us and that, Jesus, you fought for us on the cross. And that now, even as we experience this battle, we can rejoice and trust that you will bring us home safely to yourself. Help us to rest in your victory. Help us to be led by your spirit and to walk by him constantly back to you. Thank you that you will never give up on us. You will never forsake us nor leave us. And now, God, as we remember how many years ago when you poured out your spirit on the first church in that upper room in Jerusalem, and they began proclaiming the gospel in all kinds of various languages, we pray that you would give us the language, give us words to bring this good news to our neighbors, to our coworkers. Help us to bring this good news of you fighting for us to Silicon Valley, to Sunnyvale, to the larger Bay Area, and to the ends of the earth. Help us to experience you and see you working in us and through us for the sake of this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.